there's this uh, interesting uh, pattern in the synoptic gospels. That's uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, in Matthew and Luke, or Matthew and Mark, excuse me, um, every person that Jesus heals is brought to him or comes to him themselves. Uh, so all the miracles that he does in Matthew and Mark, uh, those people are uh, either seeking him themselves, they heard about him, they heard that he was a miracle worker, and so they go, or people bring them to Jesus because they, they need a miracle. Like, for example, Jesus goes to Simon Peter's house, and Simon's mother-in-law is sick, and so he heals her right there of her fever that had... Um, uh, caused her uh, a lot of distress, and people heard about it. Jesus is in this house here in Capernaum. He's able to heal, and so for the rest of the day, just people just coming in and out of the house uh, to, to be healed. That's the way most of healings and the miracles happen in Matthew and Mark, and, and in Luke, too, most of those, except for there are three exceptions. The first one, Jesus comes into a village called Nain, and, and, and Nain was not a big place, and probably it easily fit uh, inside our church property. So from Britmore to this tree line back here, just the little swath that we own, this whole village, imagine everybody you knew from your village could live in that small of a property. We're making it our goals that our yard would be this big, but in Nain, uh, everybody was living in that space, and a young man has died. Uh, he was the son of a widow, and they're having the funeral procession. They're, they're, they're now um, marching, uh, processing out of the village to, to bury him, and Jesus is coming into the village while they are going out, and he's moved. In fact, Luke says this little phrase, when he saw her, uh, the widow, uh, the young man's mother. Right? So almost every other story in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when Jesus does a miracle, somebody is bringing him or coming to, to him themselves. But in this instance, when he saw her, right, and he was moved. And so he touches this young man, and this man comes back to life. I think he did that because of a little verse in Psalm chapter 68. Would you turn there with me? Psalm chapter 68. Psalm chapter 68, verse 5. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. A father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. What God is promising here in this verse is that he will personally take care of the fatherless and the widows. I mean, ideally, people could count on us. I mean, wouldn't that be great if we were able to actually follow through with that desire um, that people would be able to trust in us, that we could come through for them, that we could extend what we are able to do for our immediate family or our closest circle of people to everybody. But we recognize that although that would be our intent, we are servants to many masters. Uh, some of those masters are our work. Some of those masters are our kids and our kids' schedule. Some of those masters are uh, other relationships that we, that we already have. And so while we would like to be able to say to these two specific groups, uh, uh, yeah, you can count on me. Widows can count on me. Uh, the fatherless can count on me. 
We're not able to follow through with that because of what Jesus said in his parables, that the good seed, our good intention is choked out by the thorns of this world, the cares and the worries of this world. We've just got a lot going on. There are lots of things to distract us, and so we're not able to fall through. So God says, of these two groups of people, I'm not going to let them fall through the cracks of unfulfilled good intentions. I am personally going to take care of them myself. A father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. There are 80 references in the scripture to widows. If you're wondering, that's a lot. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the three major prophets of the Old Testament, they all have passages in which they warn and, and condemn Israel because they have not cared for the widow or they've allowed the widow to be taken advantage of. And if you oppose a widow... Because of God's personal promise here in Psalm 68, verse 5, who are you actually opposing? You are opposing God, right? Not just a person. Um, That's why we should be careful to read the scripture because there are a few different groups of people like this listed in the scripture, which God says, I'm taking personal responsibility for. And an offense against them is an offense against me. Remember in Matthew, we, we talked about a couple of weeks ago that the poor are one of those groups. Those who, those who don't have clothes, those who are strangers, uh, uh, those who are without food and water. Jesus says, how you treat them is how you are treating me. Right? And so we need to be careful that in our lives, intentionally or unintentionally, we are not opposing People that God had says, I am assuming personal responsibility for. Because think about what it must be uh, like to be a widow. I mean, we have widows here in our church family. All of us are connected to to them in one way or another. Um, Especially those who have been married a long time. You could count on being seen by at least one person every day. I mean, isn't that what we all want? We all want to be seen. None of us want to be invisible. And when you're married, you have at least one person who has to see you. Now, not every day is a good day in marriage. Amen? Some of you have had a bad day in marriage already today. You're you're not speaking to the worshiper next to you. And and it's not not just because you don't know them. Uh, So not every morning is a good morning in marriage. But at least you can be guaranteed that someone sees you, they know you exist, and they are thinking about you. So imagine being married for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and and your spouse passes away, and suddenly the one person who was guaranteed to see you uh, is now not seeing you. And all of us, we have good intentions. I mean, how many of us have been to a funeral in which we loved that widow and we said about that widow, hey, I'm going to be there for you and I'm going to think about you and I'm going to look after you and I'm uh, going to check in on you and I'm going to email you. I'm going to call you once a week. And then again, just that that good intention, it just gets gets choked out. But God says, no, I'm assuming personal responsibility for widows. And a big part of that is seeing. Remember that little story in Genesis Abraham has been promised by God that he's going to have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. 
The problem is Abraham and his wife, Sarah, were not able to have children. So they do what most of us do when we feel like God has made a promise. And yet that promise is not coming through as fast as we would like. They take matters into their own hands. God must need an executive assistant. He needs somebody to help organize him a little bit uh, to, to just get this ball moving down, uh, down the hill. And so they said, here, we'll come up with a plan. I'm sure God will bless it. Uh, Sarah had a servant. Her name was Hagar. Uh, Abraham, if you, uh, uh, you know, uh, with Hagar, Sarah, I got myself in a cul-de-sac there and couldn't get out. Uh, uh, last uh, gathering at the nine o'clock, uh, I am getting ready to reference a, a nursing mother and I accidentally did the, the motion, uh, you know, so it's been a bad day for me. Uh, <laughs> So Sarah and Abraham, uh, they hatched this scheme, right? Uh, we'll, we'll have a, this will be a surrogate and we'll raise the baby as our own. Well, Hagar gets pregnant and guess what? It goes terrible and Sarah gets jealous and it's a huge mess. And so they, they say to Hagar, um, hey, you got to leave. Now, now this isn't, you know, we live in Memorial and we're going to send you across I-10 into Spring Branch. This is we're wandering around places, and when you leave, you're just out in the middle of nowhere. And so they sent this young pregnant woman who didn't, wasn't a part of this on her own volition. She was forced into this. They send her away, and she gets out into the wilderness. She's pregnant. She doesn't have anybody to see her. She was an Egyptian. She's a long way from anybody who knows her, loves her, uh, and would look after her. And an angel comes to her and ministers to her, and she has the audacity to give God a new name. Imagine that. God has been referred to in a few specific ways for millennia. And now Hagar says, no, I'm going to give him a new name. And God receives that new name. And it is the God who sees. And widows can claim that name. Even though it may be easy for me to fall into the cracks. And other people not fulfilling their good intentions for me. God will always see me. And then even more than that, then God will defend me. He's a defender of widows. That word defend is used in a different place in the Old Testament. Again, King David had been given a promise by God. He was going to be the king of God's people, Israel. But nothing was happening. In fact, instead of becoming king, the current king, Saul, was trying to kill him. He was chasing him around the Israel wilderness and trying to kill him because King Saul was jealous of what David was and what David would eventually become. And David is hiding in a cave, one little story tells us. And King Saul comes into that cave because he's got to use the restroom. And it's dark. I assume it's dark outside. It's, of course, dark in the caves. You probably don't know how caves work, but it's dark inside there. And King David sneaks over while King Saul is doing his business and cuts a little piece off of his kingly robe. And King Saul doesn't know it, leaves the cave and gets a little distance away. And David comes out of the cave and yells to King Saul, hey, you know, gross, number one. Uh, number two, I could have killed you, but I didn't because I don't want to kill you. I don't know why you're trying to hunt me down. I don't mean you any harm. And then David says this little phrase, may God be the judge between me and you. And that word judge is the same used, word used in Psalm 68, verse five, about what God will do for widows. He's a judge. And the way he means it there is he will always rule in favor of a widow. 
That's why in other places in the scripture, it warns us that we should not oppose a widow in court. If you're going to loan a widow money, don't make her give you something to promise to pay it back because God will sign those loan papers. He will defend the cause of the widow. He will rule in their favor. That's why we, don't want, to, we want to make sure that we're not opposing them in any way. Because he says, I, I, I personally take care of these. And in the beginning of the, the new churches and in the Gospels, they, 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 they live this out. In fact, you've heard of deacons before. Deacons only exist because widows exist. In Acts chapter 6, uh, there's a one group of widows that was being well taken care of. And there was another group of widows that was, uh, they were falling through the cracks. And so the need was brought to the leaders of the church and they created deacons. People filled with God's spirit and full of wisdom to organize and execute ministry to who? Widows. First Timothy chapter 5 has a whole section uh, for this young pastor Timothy under the tutelage of the apostle Paul. How the churches should look after widows. And it is detailed and it is specific. Because they were trying to live out Psalm 68, verse 5, that God is a defender of widows. And also, look back at it with me, a father to the fatherless. Now think about all the dramatic TV shows that you like on televisions uh, or Netflix or whatever you're doing these days. Um, if there's a drama that you like, I'm guessing it has a very complicated family at the center of it. Uh, this is us, a uh, million little things, parenthood. I know you guys watch all these things, right? <laughs> all of those families are super dysfunctional. In fact, there is not a show that people tune into where it's like loving dad, loving mom, respectful children, right? That, who would watch that show? <laughs> Nobody would see that show. Right? Complicated family makes for great TV. But complicated family makes for painful lives. The U.S. government says that somewhere between 25% and 43% of children in the United States are living without their father. Over 51,000 children entered the foster care system in Texas last year. All of the stats that you can read about, they all have different conclusions, but those conclusions fit in a broad category. If you are not living with your dad, if you, uh, your life will be harder. You know, it's interesting, I think, that the scripture continually calls out the fatherless as a group and not the motherless, because we have many who are motherless and living without your mom or disconnected with your mom or uh, a strained relationship with your mom is, uh, is painful. I think there are two reasons why God, though, uh, singles out the fatherless. Uh, number one, because I think statistically speaking, what God knew from the beginning and what we see in our culture and our own lives is a father is much more likely to abandon his family than a mother. In fact, another place in Psalms, uh, when God wants to tell his people Israel that he will never leave them or forsake them, that he is always going to be with them. You know what metaphor he reaches for? A mom, a nursing mom. Could a nursing mom ever forget the child that she was nursing? Of course, the answer is no. No, no mom would do that. Right? But a father 
Well, we all are connected to stories, if, even if it's not our own story, of a father who has walked out, who has left for whatever reason. Right? The other reason I think that God describes this group of people as fatherless is because God has chosen to relate to us as a father and children, which gives a unique influence to those who call themselves father. Because it is through that father that we all view God. So if your father was present, absent, or something in between, you cannot help and I cannot help but to view God who relates to us as father through that lens. So what I think I can say with complete confidence today is that our dads are probably the most influential people in this room. Whether you have a great relationship with them, a mediocre relationship with them, or a non-existent relationship with them. They are continually and constantly shaping your view of God who calls himself Father. Remember when we were kids and we would wreck our bikes? And you have that kind of shot of adrenaline and shock as the wreck is happening. and So then you'd get up real fast and you'd have to take inventory. Where am I hurt? Am I bleeding anywhere? Is my arm dangling at a very weird angle? I think that's probably a pretty important thing for us to do this morning in connection to our relationship with our dads. Am I, do I have any bones that are broken? Am I bleeding anywhere? I mean, for those of us who don't have great relationships with our fathers, I mean, what we tell ourselves is, I'm never going to be like my dad. I don't need my dad. Uh, I'm, I've risen above that. And meanwhile, we're just bleeding all over people. Right? Just like you could not pretend that you did not break your arm, you cannot pretend that your dad doesn't matter. He does matter. He is the filter through which you are most likely to view God. But there's great news that God knows those wounds. And in the gospel, he has given us medicine for those wounds. I want to show you one piece of that. Romans chapter 8, turn there with me. Verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing for the glory. That's not the right verse. Verse 14, <laughs> for those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. 
So what Romans chapter 8 is describing is what happened after you committed your life to Christ. When you said, I believe in Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and promise return, that that is my salvation. Jesus sends to you God's own spirit. He called it a gift uh, uh, to his disciples. The sending of God's spirit, a gift. Uh, God's spirit is advocate, uh, counselor, helper. And when God's spirit, when he comes into our lives, what does it say? He uh, gives us a spirit of adoption. By the spirit, we are adopted into God's family. And then as he comes into our lives, he calls out Abba, Father, which is like saying Dad, Father. If you've ever met anybody who only referred to their uh, dad as father, right, you kind of be like, oh, this was, that's sort of weird. Like, what is the dynamics inside that house? Right? Because in our culture, it's dad. Right? We call our dad, dad. And, and even some of us still call him daddy, which is a little bit weird, I think. But, right? So... The, the description that Romans 8 gives us is that the Spirit of God comes into our lives saying both. Now God is my Father, but I refer to Him as Dad. That's what Abba means. It's very personal. It's a, it's a very loving term. And then on top of that, it says that because we are adopted into God's family, and now we can call God our Father and our Dad, which, by the way, I've mentioned to you this many times over the last eight years, there is this common misconception, and you hear it in media all the time, that we on the earth are all God's children. Right? And, and all God's children need to get along. Right? And, and that's just not biblical. Uh, we can say with accuracy that we are all God's creation. We can say that every person on planet earth is made in the image of God. And God has a plan and a purpose for every person made in his image. But Roman, uh, uh, John chapter 1 verse 12 says that we can only become the children of God through Christ. That that is a right that is given to us when we believe in Jesus. So when we believe in Jesus, we're given that right. The spirit comes and makes it possible and then makes us co-heirs with Jesus. One of the great privileges that I have as a pastor is walking with people after they have a loved one who passes away. It's, it's, a, uh, it's, it's not something that uh, I particularly feel that I'm great at, but I count it as a real sacred privilege to be able to be there with people as they're grieving. And so watching people plan funerals and being a part of those funerals and then walking with the family after it, you see how delicate our relationships are after we lose someone, especially if that someone was the, the pivot point in our family, kind of the center of the family, the, the organizer of the family. Because there are so many things that you can have conflict about. You can have conflict about who's going to speak at the funeral. You're going to have conflict about who's going to pay for the things. You're going to have conflict uh, potentially about uh, where the funeral is going to happen and what day it's going to be. And then after all of that's over, there, there can be real conflict if there's any kind of inheritance. Right? I mean, because especially think about my situation. I live here in, in Houston, but the rest of my family all live up in southwest Missouri. As my parents get older and older and older, my sister who lives there is probably going to take on the lion's share of that. I hope she doesn't listen to that, but that's what I'm planning on. Right? <laughs> so imagine if after one of my parents passes away, uh, I uh, say to her, well, like, hey, this is this, you know, a bunch of this stuff is mine. She's going to be like, no, 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 no. I was here every day with them. I came over and checked on them. They lived with me. You know, all those things. Right? So imagine how much more Jesus 
might be able to say that to us. Co-heirs with Christ. He starts going through his resume. He starts with sinless, (laughs) sacrificial, loving, kind. How presumptuous that we would be called co-heirs. What that means is in the family of God, because of Jesus' generosity and sacrifice, you and I are written into the will. I mean, that's how you know you're in the family. We've been adopted. And then the gospel gives even more good news. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says that when we believe in Christ, we become a new creation. Uh, in the middle of the night, Nicodemus comes to Jesus in John chapter 3. And, and Jesus says, if you want to experience the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And, and then Jesus says how that happens by the spirit of God bringing new life. So not only are we adopted into the family of God, uh, we are spiritually reborn. We're spiritually, bio, uh, biologically, well, that's not the right word, <laughs> biologically God's children and adopted at the same time in every way that God could claim you in his family. He did. That's why the gospel is the fulfillment of Psalm 68, verse 5. He is a father to the fatherless. Look back at it with me. There's one last phrase there. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. It's true that we view God through the lens of our own earthly father, present, absence, or otherwise. But God says, I'm not like your earthly father. I'm in my holy dwelling. That's why in John chapter 17, Jesus refers to God as holy father. Set apart in a totally different category. While we view God initially through the lens of our father, God will say to us over and over again, I am not defined by the limits and the faults and the failures of your earthly father. My favorite author and one of my spiritual heroes, he's passed away now. His name is, was A.W. Tozer. And, and he said this in his book, Knowledge of the Holy. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. What he goes on to say later in that paragraph is that the most important thing about you is what you believe about God. That is the primary factor in what will shape your life. Even if you consider yourself an atheist, that is the most important, most influential thing about you, your mental image of God. When I was a kid, I played on the same baseball team from like kindergarten all the way uh, into high school. And um, we had a left fielder. Uh, His name was Dustin Rains, and Dustin was the sweetest kid in the world, and probably, God help him, the worst left fielder uh, in the world. And uh, I don't know what his family was paying our little league coach to keep sending him out there every game, but sure enough, he was. And and so there'd be a pop fly. (whistles) Dustin would hold his glove up, close his eyes, I'm pretty sure. (laughs) That ball would hit the ground. A hard grounder out to left field. Right through his legs, almost every time. Uh, you know, they put bleachers at uh, 
at, at Little League fields behind the backstop. But, uh, but Dustin's dad never did that. When the game would start, Dustin's dad would go and stand along the left field fence. Uh, and so he would always be about 10 or 15 feet from his son. And when one of those... We'd all brace. Because Dustin's dad would start gnawing on him. We practice that. How could you let that happen again? What's your problem? Hurry up and get it. And I remember many games turning around and seeing silent tears stream down Dustin's face. So I'm not still connected to him 30 years later, but my guess is when Dustin Rains thinks about God, he would think about God gnawing on him. Why'd you give in to that temptation? Why don't you try harder? Why'd you get distracted? Why don't you sacrifice more? Why don't you obey more? If your father set a standard of perfection in your home, A's only, my guess is that you feel closest to God after a week of good behavior. And while on one hand you do believe that God is able to forgive, you have decided not to feel that forgiveness until you've strung a few good days together. Until you hit that target perfectly the next time. Because only then can you be guaranteed that you have that right relationship with God again. If the hardest, uh, the, the value in your home that was lifted up the most was hard work. We are hard workers in this family and your father modeled that for you, which is very good. I bet though that you feel closest to God when you are working hardest for God. Because we can't help but look through the filter of our earthly fathers onto God, which I wish somebody had told me about before I decided to have kids. <laughs> I didn't know any of that. Amanda said it was time, and I was like, okay. <laughs> and then what we do as children is we think about what our earthly father probably wanted most from us, and then we project that back onto God, that that must be what he wants the most from us. That's why we went from striving for success for our earthly father, even if we're not able to connect all those dots to striving for success with our heavenly father. Because we all want that fatherly blessing. Don't we? And God gives it out freely. That's the good news of the gospel. We see that. Jesus' baptism, remember? Jesus was being baptized and God says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And if you read the gospels, Jesus hasn't even done anything yet. Isn't that cool? God was pleased with him before he'd gotten into his ministry. But then halfway through his ministry, he takes a few disciples, Peter, James, and John, up onto the mountain, and he's transfigured before him, and Peter starts saying something dumb, and God speaks directly to Peter. Isn't that the best when you find out one of your parents has been bragging about you to somebody else? That's a good feeling. And God says to Peter, this is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. God gives out those 
blessings. He gave it to Jesus. And then, so it's no shocker then that Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son. It's Luke chapter 15. We won't turn there for time's sake uh, this morning, but um, I'll retell it to you. A, A young man uh, decides he doesn't want to live on his father's farm anymore, so he goes and asks his father for his inheritance. So incredibly offensive. Just, I just want you for the money. The father gives it to him. He goes off. He spends it on wild living. He goes bankrupt. Uh, the famine happens in the land, which, by the way, if you are rebelling against God or you're planning to rebel against a person, men, you are trying to leave your family, women, you're thinking about exiting your family. I bet you do have a plan for how you're going to manage all the consequences. And that plan will work until the chaos of life happens. And then your plan to manage all of the consequences is going to fall apart. So if you are currently getting ready to rebel against something or someone, the plan you have will fall apart, just like this young man's plan did. It was going great until there was a famine in the land. And then he doesn't have any money. And he goes and takes a job on somebody else's farm feeding pigs. And he's so hungry that he wishes that he could just reach into the slop and eat it. And he comes to his senses, Luke chapter 15 says, when it says that he recognizes that his father, back at his father's farm, has the, the servants are treated better than he's being treated. He might as well go home as a servant. He can't go home as a son anymore. He burned that bridge. And so he makes a speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me like one of your servants. And so he heads home. And you remember the awesome story. The, the father doesn't even wait till he gets to the front porch and here he comes a running. And I bet if he had Dustin Reigns' dad uh, as a dad, that that son is thinking, oh man, I'm getting, I'm getting ready to get it right now. He's going to get out of here and you're worthless and you're dead to me. But that's not what the father does. He hugs him. He starts kissing all over his face, which would be weird if you're, you know, you're an adult son and your dad starts kissing you on the face. And he goes and gets a ring and puts it on his finger, goes and gets a robe from the house, puts it on him, puts shoes on his feet. That's how poor the guy had been. He didn't have shoes on his feet. And then he throws this massive party. And if you're a firstborn in here, you think, well, of course, that's what my parents would do for my younger brother or sister. (laughs) They can do whatever they want. The rules don't apply to them. And so the older brother out there in the field, he hears what's going on in the house, all the commotion. And he just starts to stew. And like firstborns, he's passive aggressive. So here comes the father. Why don't you come in and celebrate with us? And he goes into his own speech. I have been here every day with you. I've been faithful. I've worked hard. I would never do what he did. And here he comes back home and you throw him a party. You never offered to throw me a party. I've been too embarrassed and feel bad about even asking for a little goat to have a good time with my friends. You can figure out the applications for today. And the father says to him, son, you are with me every day and all that I have is yours. But this brother of yours was dead and now he's alive. I got to celebrate. Both sons misunderstood the blessing that their father wanted to give them. The first son 
He didn't understand the blessing of being. That son was always going to be blessed for no other reason than that he was a son, period, end of sentence. And some of you need to hear that today. Those of us who are strivers, working hard to, to, to get across some finish line that no one even told us to get to, God says, you are blessed for no other reason than I love you. And if I could pick a daughter from every young woman on planet earth, I'd pick you every time. I love you and you're blessed. That was what he gave to the first son. But there's also a blessing for doing in the scripture. God blesses obedience. And as children, we want that from our fathers. The reason I know that is because last Monday we were at a barbecue swim party and having a great time. And about a thousand times in the two hours that we were there, my kids said, hey, dad, watch this. (laughs) From 13 to three, all three of them. Hey, dad, watch this. I'm going to jump right in the water. After about the hundredth time, I need you to mix it up a little bit. I mean, I'm, I'm proud of you, but do something. Do something. Right? And you remember that from when you were a kid. Hey, Dad, watch this. Watch me. Because we want that blessing for being, yes, but also for the doing. And our Father God, in this parable that Jesus gives us, says, I will bless you for both. He says to the older brother, yes, you are with me every day. That's why all that I have now, because I gave your inheritance, the inheritance to your brother and he wasted it, it's gone. Now everything you see that we have, it's yours. There is a blessing for doing. The, the point is, is that you are invited wholly and totally to God's family table. And when you sit there, you are blessed in every way that God is able to bless. So what does that mean? Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1, I think is a good application for us. If you want to turn there real quick, I'll read it to you. Verse 1, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children... Your version of the Bible may say, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we are God's children. Now what should we do? We should imitate God. Psalm 68 verse 5 says that God is a defender of widows and a father to the fatherless. We are his children. So now we want to imitate him. We want to step into the needs of the widow and the the fatherless. At the house that we lived in before, the one we live in now, we had a pool, and I'm super frugal. Uh, Frugal is a nice way of saying cheap, Amanda tells me. And uh, so I didn't want to pay for a pool service, and so our pool would go from beautiful to green, like just all the time. 
And so I'd go out there with the little kit that you buy at Walmart and you'd put the little red dots in there, shake it up, and it would tell you if the chemicals were pure in there. And you put the little yellow dots in there and it would tell you about some pH thing like any of us were paying attention in science class. Right? Uh, God gives us one of those to see if our faith is checking out. He gives us the test. It's James chapter 1. Verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Is your faith genuine? Let's put a couple of dots in it today. A couple of red dots, a couple of yellow dots. Let's shake up the thing. Is your faith in Christ genuine? Um, Jesus says if it comes out that you look after the needs of the widow and the fatherless, then yes it is. And if you don't, God wants to make some adjustments. So this is the pure test. Be imitators of God. Dearly loved children. Deuteronomy chapter 24, uh, I think tells us one real practical way we can do that because God says to the Israelites, hey, I want you to look after the foreigner, the widow, and the fatherless. And then he gives them specific instructions. When you harvest your field, whether it's an olive grove, a vineyard with grapes, or something with sheaves, I want you to harvest it, but then those of us who are overachievers will think about, well, hey, I bet we missed a bunch of grapes and do another round. We missed a bunch of olives, do another round. And God says, I don't want you to do that. Those grapes, they belong to the foreigner, the widow, and the fatherless. And so leave extra. Leave room in your lives. So I think for us, we should leave money. We should leave time, we should leave energy. As dearly loved children ourselves to look after the needs of the widow and the fatherless. Don't spend everything that you have on yourself. Don't harvest all the way to the very edge. Don't try to maximize everything you have for yourself. You you, you set some aside. And so practically, uh, spiritually, and maybe literally, um, if you have a family table, I would like you to consider leaving an extra chair for a widow or the fatherless. Because Psalm chapter 68, verse 6, God sets the lonely in families. So if you have a family, God may want to set somebody in it. And so let's leave room for some extra. If you are a widow or you would consider yourself fatherless today, I just want to say something briefly to you. Um, I know it may be easy to hear this promise. God is a defender and he's a father to the fatherless. And and then look at whatever your situation is and go, I don't know. I think if he were really everything that he's saying he is in this verse, my life would be a little bit easier. And, And I just want you to know that We probably view our lives from birth to death. But that is not how God views life. He views life from birth into eternal life. Uh, Death here is painful and hard and he recognizes that. It's just a speed bump. So... I believe with everything in me, if you are a widow or you count yourself as fatherless today, that all the days that you have been a widow or all the days that you have been fatherless, you are storing up treasure in heaven. 
I bet you feel right now that there are all kinds of moth and rust that are just eating away. Your life is harder than it should have been. But you keep being faithful because God is not just going to fill this promise in this life, but you will reap a benefit that those who have had great fathers will not get. Those who have not experienced life as a widow will not get in eternal life. So you keep being faithful. God will see this promise fulfilled in this life and in the life to come. Uh, For the rest of us, uh, in two weeks, as I mentioned before church started, we're going to host an amazing gathering uh, for women parenting alone. We're going to minister in love on them and their children. Uh, Many of those women fit into these two categories. Many of those children fit into the category of the fatherless. And so if you're looking for a way to obey this, I'd encourage you to leave an extra Saturday, October 5th, in your schedule. And after church is over, I would love for you to stop in the shipping container and say, uh, hey, put me to work. I want to help. It will make a tremendous difference. Let's pray.